one thing I would add to that is when I came back to the team to host the games um, after I'd been away for a few years and uh, I was at the garden and uh, it was going to be my first game back after uh, a number of years. And I was sitting at the garden and I was working on show prep and getting ready to do the game, but I was early. I'm always one of those guys who was very early and I'm working away and not paying attention. And I feel these two arms go around my shoulders <laughs> and, and squeeze. And this voice in my ear says, it's so bleeping good to have you back. And I turned around and it was Bobby. Uh, you know, wow. file that one away in your moments <laughs> you never thought you'd live through. Uh, and, and that's the kind of guy that he was. What's brewing, everybody? Welcome in for Chris Deer and Drew Johnson. My name is Cam Hasbrook, and this is episode 300 of the Brews and Bruins podcast. We're celebrating four years for this episode, and to do that tonight, we've got a very special guest. He's a gentleman you'll recognize if you have watched or listened to any Boston sports over the past few decades, a man who is known for his bright smile, his insight, and his versatility in the sports world. He is the only broadcaster to have called play-by-play for all five of Boston's major men's professional sports franchises. It's the one and only Dale Arnold. Dale, thanks so much for joining us tonight. How you doing? Fellas, how are you? Excellent, excellent. Okay. Great to, good. Yeah, great to be celebrating our 300th episode with you and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come in with us tonight. No problem. Nice to be here. I, I appreciate the invite. Absolutely. So, Dale, I want to pretty much jump in right into your career uh, after an accomplished career really across radio and television, which we'll get to shortly. You stepped back from the microphone full time in 2021. Uh, working on a, a part-time basis with Nesson up until this past season. So how's retirement treating you? What's What have you been up to? How's it going over there? Uh, it's great. Uh, I moved back home to Maine. My wife and I moved back to Maine. Uh, we've been here for a couple of years now. In fact, really the last two years of Bruins hockey that I did, I kind of commuted from Maine. And uh, I have daughters who live down there. And I'd stay with one of them, you know, for days at a time when I'd be doing games here and there. Uh, but uh, have been back up here um, working on uh, books now for the most part. The third one came out in November. I'm, I'm working on the fourth one right now. Uh, so it gives me something to do when I'm sitting up here in the uh, cold Maine winters and I don't have to just stare out at the, at the driveway that needs to be snowblowed or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Drew and I are both in Maine, so we get that. Chris is uh, a former New Englander who has since shipped off to San Diego, so he doesn't quite get the cold anymore. But He doesn't have to snowblow at all. <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah, yeah. Although the rain out there this week has been pretty horrendous from what I've been looking at. Yeah, we've been getting some pretty crazy storms. and uh, Yeah. San Diego's not particularly equipped to handle it. So uh, luckily we've been okay, but you know, a lot of people have been dealing with some really rough oh, stuff. Awful. Yeah, it's too bad. Chris, we probably should have checked in on you. My bad for not doing that, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, glad, yeah, I should have texted okay. you. I didn't, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, the, the, the guy who's never spoken to him before is worried about him. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Dale, if I'm not mistaken, you actually grew up in Maine and was it Maine and Minnesota? Is that correct? When my dad was in the, in the, Air Force. We moved around a lot when I was a little kid. I was born uh, on at Otis Air Force Base, you know, on the Cape and born. But we lived in New Mexico and North Dakota and Minnesota and Michigan. Uh, when my dad retired, we moved back to Maine, which is where my mom was from. Uh, and I've lived or I lived in Maine from seventh grade on. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you stayed here in vacation land and went to Bowdoin College right up the road here. Um, and then out of school, you succeeded Doc Emmerich as the voice of the old AHL Mariners. 
You later joined Doc with the New Jersey Devils broadcast. What was it like for you breaking into professional broadcasting at the time? And did you realize when you were working with him at the time how much of a legend Doc Emmerich was going to be? No. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, in my mind now, he's he's the best play-by-play announcer that the sport of hockey's ever had. I didn't know that back in you know 1979 when I first started working with him. Uh, I was doing the games uh, at Bowdoin College while I was a student there and before I was a student there. Uh, the president of the Maine Mariners called me when I graduated in May of 79. And he said, look, we got a guy here uh, who does our games. He's not going to be here very long. Uh, so I want you to, to come down, work with him, staple yourself to his side, learn what he does, do whatever he says. Uh, I, I did some some games on the road with him and it was Mike. Uh, but, you know, Doc taught me, was the first broadcaster to kind of teach me the ins and outs of the business from the broadcasting perspective. Uh, preparation. I, I've never seen anybody prepare the way Doc did, the best I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if you're going to break into the business and, and you can get over the intimidation factor, he's the guy to learn from. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like uh, I would totally agree. He's he's the best that's ever done. And I think such an iconic voice. And, and when he stepped away from it a few years ago, I think every hockey fan felt it a little bit. So I mean, uh, he, sure he comes was... up on this podcast pretty often, so. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll text so each real. other now and then. Uh, you know, he retired and went back to Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I retired and, and went back to Maine. We we talk now and then, text each other now and again. But uh, when Doc stepped away from the game, he stepped away from the game. Simple as that. Yeah, got to respect that. He's, he's earned it after a, a long <laughs> yeah. and accomplished career for sure. Well, you mentioned Bowdoin College. I think you had some broadcasting experience before this. I read on your Wikipedia page. <laughs> that uh, your first broadcasting experience came at the age of 15 when you started calling Brunswick High School football games. Is that true? I, I did games on the radio and start and get, started to get paid for it when I was 15 years old. And uh, it was on the, the commercial station in Brunswick. Uh, at the time was WCME and then became WKXA. Uh, a little 1,000-watt daytimer, but an 80,000-watt flamethrower on the FM side. Uh, my, my friend and I both got jobs at the radio station. He preceded me and got me a job there as well. Started doing the games when I was 15. As, as the years went on, we added Bowdoin hockey and Bowdoin football to the, to the mix as well. And I got to kind of add those to my, my repertoire and, and just kept going from there. Now, what was it about broadcasting at such a young age that really drew you to it? Were you always the dream or were you, you know, most broadcasters, at least that I know, always wanted to be a professional athlete and then, you know, <laughs> not quite as many spots. So is that, is that your story as well? Uh, yeah. One, once I realized I wasn't going to be going to become the center fielder for the Red Sox, I had to figure out another way that I, I could work in the sports field and, you know, mm-hmm. still keep, be gamefully employed. Um, you know, the, the, the games on the radio was kind of the, the foot in the door, but when I became a student at Bowdoin, they didn't have a broadcast department. They don't have a communications major. Uh, so I majored in psychology and minored in archaeology uh, because I figured, you know, there aren't that many play-by-play jobs out there. And uh, I better have a backup plan. Luckily, uh, plan A worked and I was able to make a, a living in the business. But uh, back then, mathematics would tell you that a kid who grew up, uh, you know, in a as the oldest of five kids in a mobile home in rural Maine, the chances of that guy working in the major leagues in any sport, let alone the National Hockey League, where all those Canadian franchises weren't going to employ me anyway. So uh, the, the chances were mathematically, it wasn't a very good idea to, to pursue it, but luckily it worked out. So what, what was the backup plan with the psychology and archaeology? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, when <laughs> when, uh, when Gord Kluzak got married uh, in Greece, 
uh, Ray Bork and Cleon Daskalakis and I all went over for, for Gordy's wedding. And uh, I, we were there for a week. And I think I spent most of the week other than Gord's wedding, uh, you know, touring the Acropolis and the Parthenon and Delphi. And uh, I, I knew more about uh, archaeological sites than any sports announcer on the planet. Uh, I, I don't know how I would have made a living in the archaeology field, psychology, perhaps. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'd have done. It worked out and I didn't have to worry about it. But I figured I'd better get a degree in something. Documentaries. Like you could have been in documentaries. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe. Exactly. I feel like Nesson missed an opportunity there with the archaeology. There could have been something cool, but they, they never asked. I, mean, I, I was there. <laughs> Luckily, it did end up working out for you, as we said, through high school into Bowdoin and then out uh, with the Maine Mariners and eventually into New Jersey. Uh, you spent about two years in New Jersey before coming back to New England to start calling Patriots game. And eventually you would call New England home for the rest of your career. Uh, I want to talk about your time with the Bruins in a second. But first, we do have to acknowledge the pretty remarkable achievement that we mentioned in the intro. You are the only broadcaster who has done play-by-play -play for all five of Boston's major men's professional sports franchises, the Bruins, the Red Sox, the Celtics, the Patriots, and the often overlooked New England Revolution. Go Revs. Not by uh, me. <laughs> looking back on your career, how special is that for you to, to have done all of that and, and had an opportunity to, to play a small role in all of those different sports? Yeah, I think realistically, the Celtics, I almost feel like I cheated there because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I kind of did fill in a few times. I think I did a total of about 10 games, but it gave me the fifth sport. I did a full season of Revolution. Uh, you know, I did three seasons of Patriots. Red Sox, I did a fair amount, mm -hmm. you know, between like 2011 and 2020. Uh, I did a fair number of games there. And of course, Bruins, uh, I, I did a lot of games. So. Uh, Celtics was the, the one area where I cheated a tiny little bit, but I got those 10 games in. Yeah, Cedric Maxwell and I worked together. I, I mean, I, I did them, so I, I get to count all five. If that you is... played 10 NBA games, you'd be considered an NBA player. So I think it makes sense. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah, it's 10 more than yeah. any of us, for sure. I'd count, <laughs> I, I'd count it, I'll tell you. Absolutely. Well, let's zoom in on the Bruins for a little bit. You did start calling Bruins games back in 1995. Uh, became a staple of the Bruins broadcast as both a play-by-play -play announcer and a studio analyst. You had a lot of time there. You saw a lot of great moments. Are there some highlights that stick out to you over the years of, of things that, you know, you'll just never forget? I saw some pretty crummy moments too, to be honest with you. I mean, Those I early 2000s Bruins. were rough. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing the Bruins games when Mike O'Connell traded Joe Thornton to the San Jose Sharks. Uh, you know, there were some bad times. People used to call me because I was doing sports talk radio on EEI and then doing Bruins games as well. And people would call me on the talk show and say, yeah, uh, what's up with all the yellow seats, Dale? How come nobody's going to the games? Because they would rag on me about my, my love for the Bruins and, and love for hockey. So there were some lean times in there. Ironically, you know, when they won the cup in 2011, uh, I wasn't working the games then. So even double ironically, I actually have a, a Red Sox World Series ring, but I don't have a Bruins Stanley Cup <laughs> ring. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I loved doing the play-by-play. -play. I enjoyed the time. Uh, the last few years when I got to host the games, I loved working with Billy and Barry and Andrew and, and some other guys who were mixed in there as well, but they were the primary uh, mm -hmm. analysts that I worked with. Uh, you know, there were some some wonderful times. Uh, I would have bet my mortgage and all of your mortgages that they were going to win game seven of the Stanley oh. Cup final against the Blues at the TD Garden. I would have bet everything I owned. Uh, and, I'd, and I'd be sitting destitute right now in a ditch somewhere here in Maine. Um, so, you know, there were some great times and some great things that I got to see some great people th that I got to know. It's probably people even more than, than broadcast moments. You know, 
to to become friends with and and know guys like Bobby Orr and Ray Bork and Patrice Bergeron and Sedano Chara and others. Uh, it was it was very special for me to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, what's it like, kind of like seeing behind the curtain for those guys? Like, obviously, you know they they're all professional athletes. They have you know kind of their own agendas as far as their career goes. What's it like to kind of peel back the curtain, maybe off camera, and get to get to know them a little bit better beyond just the typical hockey, you know, get pucks deep, pucks to the net kind of thing? <laughs> well, what you realize very quickly is that you know they're they're pretty normal guys. Uh, Bobby Orr, in my opinion, is the greatest defenseman who ever played the game, and one of the three best players who ever played the game. And yet, if you if you talk to him, if you if you're around him, you'd never know that he's the most humble, down to earth, fun loving, funny guy. Uh, giving uh, all everything I can say positive about him, I, I you know I would continue to say throughout the course of this entire podcast. Raymond, uh, the exact same way. Patrice, the exact same way. Uh, but you learn very quickly that you know they're pretty normal people. They're they're not a whole lot different than you and me, except they can skate and I can't, uh, <laughs> and they can skate really well and I can't. So uh, they're just remarkable athletes who are who are as down to earth and normal as as you three guys are as, as buddies doing a podcast. I always did find it cool. Like even when the, the Bruins do like the dad's trip and, and they have Bobby Orr up there and he's just hanging out with them. Right. It's not like he's, he's too good to be with, you know, average folks and things like that. It's, it's really neat to see. One thing I would add to that is when I came back to the team to host the games um, after I'd been away for a few years and uh, I was at the garden and uh, it was going to be my first game back after uh, a number of years. And I was sitting at the garden and I was working on show prep and getting ready to do the game. But I was early. I'm always one of those guys who was very early and I'm working away and not paying attention. And I feel these two arms go around my shoulders <laughs> and, and squeeze. And this voice in my ear says, it's so bleeping good to have you back. And I turned around and it was Bobby. Uh, you know, wow. File that one away in your moments. <laughs> you never thought you'd live through. Uh, and, and that's the kind of guy that he was. Well, so uh, kind of kind of a double-edged sword. So I feel like the perception of hockey players is that they are, you know, more humble than, you know, maybe other athletes in other sports, um, but also maybe more boring. Do you find that in their normal lives, they are less boring and feel like they can be a little freer? I, I probably would fight you on the boring part. Um, I, I would absolutely you know, defend to the death your idea about humble. I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the fact that m- many, if not most of them, moved away from home at a young age to play junior hockey and live with billet families and, uh, you know, spend a, they, they had to grow up a little faster. They are absolutely more humble. They are absolutely more down to earth. Uh, I don't know if I'd, if I'd agree with the boring part. If if by by not being boring, you're talking about, you know, athletes who are out swinging the, the the sweet night lifestyle or or you know getting into trouble or, or that stuff they're they're not like that uh they're pretty normal guys but i, I don't know if boring is the word i'd use yeah i i think that's a perception thing i think guys yeah. like david posternock is obviously not boring he's a very exciting <laughs> person and i think there are plenty of personalities in in hockey and i know you've written well, books about guys who have guy personalities here, this guy back here sean thornton uh, who yeah. I wrote the book with. Exactly. Uh, he is not boring. No. <laughs> uh, he, he is he is not boring at all, which is why I wanted to, to work on his biography with him. Uh, and I had a blast doing it. Now, unfortunately for Sean and I, we signed the contract to do the book 
about three weeks before COVID hit. And we ended up writing that entire book over the phone. Uh, it was wow. not what our plan was. It was <laughs> not how we thought the, the you know, creative process was going to work. Uh, but we didn't actually see each other face to face until the book release party. And, wow. and it's kind of ironic you know, that we were able to, to get it done and communicate in a way that, you know, got the idea across. But uh, that's a guy I would not call boring at all. <laughs> yeah. You shouldn't call him that to his face either. Yeah, that's, you wouldn't want to fight him on it either. No, no. <laughs> Probably absolutely not. not. Well, Dale, you had uh, an extensive career also at WEI, which we mentioned as well. For people who are kind of interested in the behind the curtain stuff, what are some of the biggest differences between broadcasting for TV and for radio, especially in sports? Well, the biggest thing, and this is, you know, kind of self-evident, but, uh, you know, you got to learn to shut up. Um, you know, when you're doing the game on TV, uh, you guys are all watching the game on TV like I'm watching the game. I don't have to do a, a rat-a-tat-a-tat radio play-by-play of, you know, Bergeron passes to the left wing to Marshawn, moves it behind the net to to Krejci, uh, you know, back out to the point. You don't have to do that. People can see that. Uh, you're a little more economical with your words, a little more economical with your descriptions. Uh, you, you try to tighten things up a little bit. Radio, in that regard, is actually more fun. Uh, you know, when you're doing a game on radio, you're it. They can't see what you see. You have to, to tell them what's going on. You have to bring them on the journey. And, and in that regard, doing games on the radio are more fun. But, you know, TV is what everybody aspires to, and it's what I aspired to as well. Over the course of your career, you, as you mentioned before, I've spoken with a wide range of Boston sports legends from Terry Francona to Bill Belichick to Bobby Orr and Patrice Bergeron. Um, but the person you spoke with the most is a good personal friend of yours, and you, you talked about some relationships that you developed over the course of your career. Uh, the former Boston Globe sports writer and longtime broadcaster Michael Holly, who you worked with for about 10 years, I know Chris has a very special place in, in his heart for your guys' old show, but I'm um, curious, you know, how did you guys first meet and how did that relationship develop over the course of your career working together? I love Michael Holly. Uh, when my son got married in New Orleans uh, almost 10 years ago, uh, Michael and his wife were in New Orleans for the wedding. Uh, you know, that's the relationship that, that we have. Barry Peterson was at the wedding in New Orleans. Um, but, you know, Michael was looking at, at getting into some radio stuff. We were actually looking to hire, uh, not a replacement, I hate that word, but a, a person who was going to follow Bob Newmeyer, who I had been co-hosting the show with and knew me, decided he wanted to leave. And, and we honestly, and this is the honest to God's truth, we offered the job to Jackie McMullen. And, and I thought she was going to do it. And I think she came real close to doing it. And ultimately, she decided she didn't want to make the time commitment to be away from her family and away from her kids uh, at a time when, you know, they were in high school and playing sports. And I understood completely. Uh, but and I, I don't want to make this sound like Michael Holly was plan B, but he was the next person we went to. Mm -hmm. uh, we started doing the show together. We, we always got along great. Uh, we really did. We had a couple of arguments uh, in the early years. I remember one time we were doing the show and we were talking about about kids or something and i said to michael you know you don't have kids so you don't understand this yet uh but when you have kids you'll know and when we went off the air he was really mad at me and he, he said you know just because i have kids doesn't mean i can't understand you know i can know what's going on and he told me later he went home that day and his mom called him and his mom said michael 
you listen to that man. You can't know <laughs> until you have kids. And, and, and when Michael and his wife ended up having children later on, we would joke about it. And he would say to me, Dale, you were so right. You can't, you can't know until you have kids. But I, I love the guy. He was fun. He was informed. He was, he was prepared. He, he was funny. I would have kept doing, I, I probably would still be doing the radio show today if Michael was still doing the radio show. When he decided he was going to leave, I worked for a few more years after that with Rich Keith, who I like a lot, loved working with him, with Jerry Thornton. But, uh, you know, I got out of the, the radio business almost three years ago now, and it was time for me. I, I had probably had enough at that point of the radio business, and it was time to go. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Western Massachusetts near Amherst, and EEI was the only Boston sports station we got so 105.5 in springfield yep i was tuned in uh yeah and you guys came on while i was in high school just a very formative uh show for me i think for for my money one of the best radio shows of all time it was my favorite thank you and it it was the most fun i ever had doing radio uh like i said if, if michael called me today and said hey you want to do a radio show i'd probably say sure where do you want me and when? But uh, I don't think either of us are at that stage of our careers. <laughs> I, I feel like it's like a, an old classic rock band that's about to come together for another tour. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, and hopefully it doesn't end like Stillwater did in, in Almost Famous. Well, I got a question here. Um, are, are there any specific calls uh, across your career that you, you look back and say, you know, like th that was epic, like that was perfect? Well, I just uh... I hate saying that. You won't hear me say those words ever. <laughs> uh, the one that I got the most attention for was an accident. Uh, not an accident. It was just an ad lib. Uh, I was doing Patriots games. Doug Flutie was brought in, let's be honest, as a scab player. Uh, you know, they, they were having trouble putting people in the seats and they brought the local hero in. And they were at, at, well, then it was Shaker Stadium, or maybe it was Foxborough by that time, but it was not, you know, the beautiful place that they have now. And uh, Flutie did this naked bootleg and ended up scoring this big touchdown late. I, I made the call of the game, and then I, and, you know, the place is going nuts as much as that place could go nuts. And I said, this place has gone icky balooky. And uh, <laughs> Gino Capaletti, who I was working with, looks over at me, and, and on the air, you could hear him say, what? And I just kept going, didn't think anything about it. Um, NFL films would take the radio calls of the local, uh, you know, broadcasters and they would marry them up to NFL films footage. And they did with this one. And it went viral to use the term that you use now that you wouldn't have used then. And everybody heard it. Mm -hmm. And I remember the, uh, the media writer, I think for the Herald, I think it was Jim Baker who called me and he said, uh, he said, what was, what was this icky balooky thing? I said, I don't know. I, 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 I said, I, I, it just came out. I just said it. And he said, uh, he said, how do you spell it? I said, I-C-K-E-Y-B-A-L-O-O-K-I. And he said, are you sure? I said, I said, Jim, if I make them up, I can spell them any way I want. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea where it came from. I have no idea why I said it. Uh, it, it, it was an accurate description of the atmosphere within the stadium at the time. It was just put a little differently than other people might have put it. Uh, but it, it was probably the play-by-play -play call that I was most famous for, and it was a fluke.
I would I, mean, I would put that right up there as far as ad libs go with with Al Michaels doing the miracle call in 1980. I no, think not right there. No, <laughs> not right there. no. <laughs> it is about as organic as it gets, though. Yep. <laughs> We'll bring it back to Dale in just a minute, but first, a reminder that the Bruising Bruins podcast is sponsored by DraftKings. Looking for a super offer for Super Bowl 58? DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58. With promo code THPN, the crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Dale, you mentioned your book earlier that you released back in November called Tough Guys, uh, deep dive into hockey's enforcers, walking through the history of hockey's enforcers, profiling a couple of the hardest fighters across eras and, and sharing their stories. You mentioned also you've worked with uh, Sean Thornton on his biography in the past. Obviously, there's a tie there. I'm curious, like, what's the inspiration for both books? And have you always been an enforcer guy? Or, you know, is that something that developed kind of as you got to well, know these it's players? similar to my career. You know, I was a very, yeah, very tough guy myself. <coughs> I, truthfully, you guys mentioned how hockey players are the easiest professional athletes to deal with. And you're right. Within the... The, the genre of hockey players, there's kind of a subset of, of hockey player and, and they're the tough guys. And mm-hmm. I find them the most down to earth, the easiest to deal with, often the best storytellers. Started in my minor league days. Uh, when I first started with the Maine Mariners, they were the Philadelphia Flyers top affiliate. And they were built like a miniature Philadelphia Flyers, a miniature Broad Street Bullies. You know, with guys like Dave Brown and Glenn Cochran and Jim Cunningham and Dave Hoyda, and, and I could go on and on and on. Uh, Archie Henderson and Mel Hewitt, and I got to know these guys. I, I came to admire them. I came to respect them and really appreciate you know how they made a living. So when uh, when I was looking to write my third book, I thought you know everybody talks to guys like you know Patrice Bergeron and Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid. But who talks to the tough guys? Who gives who gives them a chance to tell their stories? So what I did was I, I devoted a chapter to each of these different people. The very first one that I that I talked to was Terry O'Reilly because I said, how the hell am I going to write a book about tough guys and not have Terry O'Reilly? And it was this great story. I called him and left a message, and uh, and he called me back and and he said, Dale, I'm sorry, I'm late. He said, uh, I, I was I was out skating. And at the time he was 70 years old, he'd had his knees replaced and his hips and all that stuff. And so I had to ask him, I said, why? And he said, well, and he was laughing. He said, well, I kind of wanted to see if I still liked it. And I said, did you? He said, and he laughed again. He said, ask me tomorrow, today, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, he was the first one that I wrote about, but there were a bunch of others, some uh, a lot less known than others, you know, if, if you're writing a book about tough guys, it's easy to include Terry O'Reilly and Chris Nyland and Dave Brown and, 
you know, some of those guys, uh, but some lesser known guys. Archie Henderson was a minor league tough guy legend. Didn't play a lot in the National Hockey League, but in the minor leagues, he was something and fun to talk to. Bobby Robbins uh, played, I think, three games for the Boston Bruins. Uh, but it feels at, like more, you know, but I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it was like three or maybe four at the most. Um, you know, he played it at UMass Lowell. They loved him there. He played in Providence and Bobby Robbins was named to the all time team for the Providence Bruins. It'll give you an idea of what the fans thought of this guy. Um, and you know, guys like PJ stock and, um, people like that, who I got a chance to talk to and visit with and tell stories with and include them in the book. And, uh, I'm, I'm really happy with how it came out. I'm happy with how they were presented. Uh, I have freely admitted that as the years went on, I probably looked differently at the idea of fighting. You know, we know now what we didn't know then. We didn't know about brain trauma. We didn't know about CTE. You know, a guy would get knocked out and they'd give him some smelling salts and get back out there. Here you go. Probably not, you know, the smartest thing to do. Um, I probably look at fighting differently now. I don't think differently of the people who do it. My respect mm -hmm. for those people is immense. But a guy like Bobby Robbins, who has been very forthright about, you know, problems with, he thinks with CTE, he won't know that until he's dead. Mm -hmm. You can't diagnose it while you're alive, but certainly brain trauma. And in the book, he admitted sitting in his car with the gun in his hand and thinking about if it was time to just end things. And it's hard to have a conversation like that with a person and not rethink in your own head how much you enjoyed, you know, calling. I loved calling fights. I mean, I had a blast calling fights. Uh, but a guy like PJ Stock, you know, when he said to me, sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and I'll say to my wife, do I not remember things because I'm getting old? Or do I not remember things because I took too many shots to the head? You think about stuff like that when you talk to guys. Now, to a man, every single one of them said, I knew what I was in for. I knew what I signed up for. I'd do it again. Uh, I have no regrets. I, I, I am not complaining at all. But also to a man, they're kind of worried about what the long-term toll will be on their health. Uh, thankfully, if you go talk to Terry O'Reilly tomorrow, you'll find him as sharp and funny and witty as, as he's ever been. And there was nobody who played the game harder than him. He just must have given out more than he received, I guess, yeah. over his career. <laughs> yeah. That is uh, – and I was actually going to ask you that next kind of leading out of that is is whether, you know, obviously there's, there's been a lot of change in the game over the last, heck, five years, but let alone 10, 20, 30. Uh, a lot more speed, skill-based, less, less physical still. I mean, obviously the North American game is still a lot more physical than the European game, but – um, I guess at a higher level, do you think there still is room in the game for, for the enforcer or is it kind of a, a different version of, of that type of player now that you might see or, or how do you feel about that? Yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be a spot for an enforcer, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a guy who you park on the fourth line and trot out for two shifts a period. Um, even Sean Thornton changed that position, if you think about it. Oh, yeah. he, was not, mm -hmm. he was not that guy. Uh, the Bruins don't win the Stanley Cup in 2011 without the play of the Merlot line. And mm -hmm. he was crucial and critical to them being good enough to win the Cup that year. He wasn't just a guy who could ply his trade with his fists. He was great at that. He could play the game. He surprised people with his skill and his hands most of the time. But a guy who, you know, 
and I, I'm, uh, it would be a disservice, I guess, to name guys that we watched throughout the course of, of our careers, you know, who, you know, get parked over there on the end of the bench and somebody takes a hit and okay, go over the boards, go take care of this. You know, they don't really don't have that kind of guy anymore. You've got to be able to add something to the mix. You've got to be a penalty killer or you've got to be a face-off guy. If that was the case, you've got to be able to do something besides go out and fight people. So the enforcer, as we grew up with it, or at least as I grew up with it, I'm a lot older than you guys, that really doesn't exist anymore. You had mentioned earlier that you're you're writing something now, right? Yeah. Um, any any details or a teaser yeah. or anything like that you yeah. can give us? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you this much. It's in format, it's similar to Tough Guys in that uh, it's, it's a book with a bunch of individuals. Each person has their own chapter. Um, and the difference is, you know, where... Uh, Tough guys was obviously those guys. Uh, the new book is is about coaches, and uh, and you know coaches mainly in the National Hockey League today. A couple of guys who aren't. Uh, I spent an hour and a half on the phone the other day with Scotty Bowman, and what a trip that was. <laughs> I mean, and, and as I was you know working on this book, I thought you know I, I know my primary focus is on guys coaching in the game today, and and guys have been very cooperative and helped me, you know, putting this thing together. But how do I not talk to the guy who's won more games than anybody in the history of the game and more Stanley Cups than anybody in the history of the game? And uh, I, I had a friend who put me in touch with Scotty and he was amazing. He was, I don't know how the hell I'm going to keep this into a chapter with all the mm -hmm. stuff that, that he had. Uh, I had another guy in, that I've talked to that will be in the book uh, named John Paddock probably a name that won't mean as much to people, although he coached in the NHL, uh, was a general manager, but he also spent the last three years as coach of the Regina Pats of the Western Hockey League and preparing Connor Bedard to be the next great thing. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about what that was like and, and what he had to do to help prepare Bedard to make that leap. Uh, a lot of people, me included, you know, think Bedard is one of those generational players like a Sidney Crosby, like a, a Mario Lemieux, like a, a, a Connor McDavid. And I'm not saying he's going to be a Hall of Fame performer like those, but that kind of generational player. And I was curious to see what it was like for John to prepare him. Now, as mm -hmm. it turns out, John was a player for the Maine Mariners when I was doing the games, you know, 40 some years ago. Wow. So we've been friends forever. And you know, it was a pretty easy phone call for me to make. <laughs> uh, but that's that's what the next one is about. It's it's coaches. Uh, now I've, I've been thrilled with the people who have been willing to cooperate so far. About three weeks after it happened, I was sitting on uh, Bruce Cassidy's patio on the Cape talking about winning a Stanley Cup with the Vegas Golden Knights. And uh, it was fun. And, and, you know, all these coaches that I've talked to so far have been fun. And now comes the hard part, trying to get it all down on paper so that it looks <laughs> at least accessible to people. Absolutely. Looking, yeah. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's you mentioned the Bedard thing. That's one of the things that I really find interesting. And I feel like I've heard the conversation more in like the soccer circles, but in those like in juniors and development, like as a coach, how much is it about your team winning versus just developing the guys so that they can take that next step? So we'll certainly be uh, figuring through that chapter a little extra closely for sure. It'll be fun. Yeah. I think you'll enjoy it. All right. So we, we mentioned that you split duties in the studio last year with uh, Sophia Yerkstevich. I was just wondering, was that always the succession plan? Yeah, it, ha if... it actually started two years ago. OK, um, I at the end of the season, you know, a couple of years ago, the, before I did the last two years, 
uh, I met with the, my boss at Nesson and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, in a perfect world, I'd do a couple more years and then head on down the highway. And he said, fine. Uh, and he said, no, we've got to prepare because Sophia is probably going to be the person who follows you. We've got to get her ready. And I understood completely. Um, you know, my job was to try to help her. And she's really good at what she does anyway. She didn't need a whole lot of help from me. But um, that was the plan all along. Uh, you know, we kind of split the games the last couple of years that I was there. Uh, ironically, at the end of last season, we, had, we were splitting the games in the first round. And then what I was told was, if the Bruins go on to the next round, you're going to host all the games the rest of the way. Uh, but Sophia had game seven against the Florida Panthers, which means I was sitting on that couch over there when my career ended, watching the game on that TV over there. Uh, uh, because, you know, the overtime game winner for the Panthers, and that was it for me. Yeah, that one hurt for all of us, but it must have stuck a little. <laughs> yeah, for it, sure. hurt, it hurt me a little bit, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I don't think we recorded for about a month after that. Honestly, yeah, no, we were, we were, <laughs> we were pretty, pretty yeah, upset. We were that one off. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, mentioning that, uh, does it feel like the pressure is off a little this season because of you know you don't have that one last ride for Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci going on? You don't have the pressure of kind of chasing this regular season record. Or does it feel like the pressure is on doubly because you don't want another first round exit? You know, I, it, it's a great question uh, because let's be honest, I, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I'm going to admit this for myself. Uh, I thought without Bergeron, without Krejci, uh, that there was going to be a dip for this team this year. And there hasn't been. Uh, maybe, you know, Jim Montgomery deserves more credit than I think. Uh, I think that the goaltending has certainly been the key to the, the team's success so far this year. You've got two top flight first string goaltenders and, and there've been many nights when they've kind of saved the bacon. I, I don't want to say they're playing with house money because that's unfair. They have surprised people with how good they've been this year. And at least in my opinion, they've surprised people. I, there weren't many preseason prognostications that you know, had the Bruins as the top team in the East at the all-star break. And they were, and they are, you know, they're can, Last night was awful. I mean, <laughs> yeah. just a horrific, uh, you know, performance uh, against Calgary. But uh, for the most part, you know, they've still got some veteran leadership. I think Brad Marchand has done an incredible job uh, getting the C uh, after Patrice had it. Uh, as I said, they've got great goaltending and they've got some players. Charlie Coyle has stepped, stepped up in a huge way this season for this team. So I don't want to say they're playing with house money. That would be unfair. But I, I think, you know, maybe the pressure's off a little bit for this team. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, yeah, Charlie Coyle has basically been Patrice Bergeron offensively, obviously not he defensively, has. but he's been pretty good defensively as well. I, I, I will say this, and I kind of half-joked about this uh, a few weeks ago, because I think ultimately uh, this team's lack of success in the face-off circle is going to come back and bite them in the backside in a big way. And I can't a half joke that, you know, maybe the Bruins could talk Patrice into coming back just to take <laughs> face-offs, uh, especially in the defensive zone, because face-offs have been a problem for this team. Yeah. And both Krejci and Bergeron were great at it. So mm -hmm. that's an area that I think they're going to have to try to improve. My guess is if Don Sweeney makes a move at the trade deadline, maybe a name that's not going to jump out at people, 
but take a look at that person's face-off numbers and, and you may get an idea of why he made the move that he makes. Yeah. And face-offs are super important, especially with, you know, a team that's been losing in overtime a lot, winning yep. face-off and gaining possession in overtime can be really important. Yep. <laughs> Like the NFL OT coin flip besides. The- <laughs> <laughs> Dale, only a couple more questions for you. I'd be curious. Sure. Um, I, I would assume at least hockey was, was number one for you, but what was your second favorite sport to, to broadcast for? Probably football. Um, and the Patriots were God awful when I was two in the games. So it, it's almost unfair to, to, to say it that way. Um, Basketball, I felt like I was, you know, kind of walking that tightrope, you know, I could keep up because I I was a hockey play-by-play announcer, so I could keep up with the speed of the game, but I felt I was lacking in terms of, you know, knowledge and and terminology. Um, I like baseball. I like calling baseball, but after you've done hockey for a number of years, baseball seems glacial in its Mm -hmm. pace. You know, it's, it's so slow. Uh, and that was the problem with, with soccer as well, by the way. I mean, I was doing games on the radio and, you know, you'd have these, these 40 yard cross pitch passes that would be in the air for eight seconds. It felt like, what the heck are you going to say when all of that's going on? Uh, so I probably liked the, the faster sports, but football was probably the second favorite sport that I broadcast hockey far and away the, the best. Uh, Drew, I think your dad had a question for Dale. Is that, that was correct? that was my, my dad. <laughs> oh, was it? <laughs> All right, Chris, go ahead. Uh, or, or Chris's dad, rather. <laughs> my dad wanted to ask you, Dale, uh, thoughts on Bill O'Brien potentially coming home to coach BC football. I hope he does. Um, you know, I, uh, it, it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, first of all, Boston College would be getting a really good football coach. Um, second of all, uh, I, I know from a family perspective, I think Bill would kind of like to stay in the area if he can. Um, you know, I, I, I think it would be great for BC. Um, obviously it's up to the O'Brien family, what he wants to do, but, uh, you know, they, they kind of got stuck a little bit with the, the lateness of, uh, of the move here. And this might be a way to really bail them out if they can bring O'Brien in. Much appreciated. <laughs> Tell your dad, I appreciate it. <laughs> I will do that. Drew, did you have your uh your throwback ready to go here? Oh yeah. All right. Um <laughs> so one last thing, Dale, Uh-oh. is actually about 10 years ago we met. Um oh. and you were kind enough to take a photo with my cousin and I at a Bruins game. I think you guys had just wrapped up one of the intermission uh yeah. portions and uh I wanted to share this photo because oh, let me see. Yeah. you had a, you had, I got to find the uh, button to hit share screen, but I think the key to this photo is you said, let's go over here. The lighting will be great. <laughs> oh, so we were outside the studio then. Yeah. It was like I, just I, outside. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let and me I think find... the lighting wasn't great. So I, I can tell where this is going. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Here, here. I it was is. trying I to be a nice guy, and I have a feeling I screwed you guys. <laughs> so this is blown up with about like five Instagram filters at the time to brighten it. Well, I'm I on the right there. Really you can't even you see guys. me. Yeah. No, I, I look great. You look awful. So I think it's a good photo. I think we're good to go. <laughs> no, I think you, it's great. It's a, you, Drew, you should have just taken the hat off. That's that's the only problem. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the issue. <laughs> well, sorry, I, I was trying to be a nice guy, and I failed. <laughs> Well, you're you. you're a nice guy now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Dan, last question for you: Do you think the Bruins have enough to to make a run this year? Seriously, 
Um, or do you think they, they might still be a piece short and, and maybe they have relied on the goaltending a little bit too much? They may be a piece short still. Um, it's funny, the whole goaltending thing, because I think Jim Montgomery was on the verge of playing both goaltenders in the Stanley Cup playoffs last year, you know, mm-hmm. and alternating like they do during the regular season. Uh, one of the coaches who I, I talked to for the book, and I, I don't want to give stuff away and, and I won't say which, uh, but this coach said, we're on the verge of having that happen in the National Hockey League. And he said, the Bruins may be the team that, that do it because they've got two goaltenders who are that good. Um, it just it just feels like they don't quite have enough yet. Um, and, and that's not a knock on what I've seen because they've, they've performed remarkably. Uh, you know, their special teams have been good. Uh, not great, but good. Uh, goaltending has been great. Defense, you've got McAvoy, who I still think is a legitimate Norris Trophy candidate every single season that he plays. Lindholm, has his play has suffered a little bit from, from my eyes, from you know what we saw when he came over in the, in the deal initially. Um, and depth up front, their first couple of, well, how many years have we been saying? Well, the first couple of lines for the Bruins are great. After that, who knows? And you know, we could say that every single year. Every team could say that every single year. I got a feeling Don Sweeney's got a trade or two in him at the trade deadline, and I'll be curious to see what he comes up with. All right. Well, Dale, uh, you already mentioned you have your fourth book upcoming to our listeners. He's already got three out by my count. If these walls could talk, Boston Bruins edition, uh, the tough guys, as we mentioned before, and then Sean Thornton's fighting my way to the top biography. Do you have a release date for the new one or is it still too far out? I, I think, well, the the manuscript is due August 1st. Um, my understanding is right about now, a year from now, uh, is, is when they plan to, to have it published and I'll get all nervous again. I get more nervous trying to get the manuscript in. Once it's in, it's like, oh, thank God. Now they can worry about it. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, uh, I, I've, I've already submitted the first couple of chapters and continuing to bang through some more. Excellent. Well, we're certainly looking forward to it. Everybody can can catch up if they haven't already read your other work so far in time for uh, for a year from now to catch the new one. Dale, thanks so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate the time. Uh, I think I'm speaking for all of us when I say it's it's been a, a real pleasure having you on. So yeah, really uh, kind of you to do. Thank you, yeah. guys. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for a couple of guys from Maine and one from San Diego. How could I not? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, hey, maybe we'll see you around one of the local breweries sometime, Dale. <laughs> you never know. I could be there. well, or my red solo cup full of water. <laughs> Either <laughs> one. Either one. It looks good for the show. Cheers, Dale. <laughs> it looks good. All right, guys. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you.